0: Today, I am so excited to be interviewing comedian and podcaster himself, Francis Ellis.
1: Thanks for having me, Zoe. This was fun.
0: I'm so excited. And if you notice the sound quality is a little better, it's because um, I'm recording in a better studio than my apartment. Anyway, um, I thought I'd just kind of touch on some background information first, if you don't mind introducing yourself, where are you from, where did you go to school, what you study? Sure.
1: Sure. So, my name is Francis. I grew up in Maine. Uh, I went to Harvard and studied political science uh, and English while I was there.
0: What was it like uh, at Harvard?
1: Harvard was fun. I liked it. Mm-hmm. You know? It's funny. It's like when I say that, um, people always have a joke.
0: I don't have a joke. I'm not funny. Meaning
1: like, oh, they're like, where'd you go to school? And you say, Harvard. And then they want to fuck with you. Can we swear on this podcast? I'm yes. Sorry. Okay. Um, they they're like they're either like oh oh look you know like look they just think you're an asshole for saying that. Um, and I I know it's or do even they think you're joking. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they think I'm fucking with them, or they'll or they'll be like, because uh, it's such a cliche. Only the douchebag in movies ever says that. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's like hard to not, I mean, there's no other answer than actually saying where you went to school. But. Well, that's
1: right. That's right. But, but nobody says that when you say uh, Stanford or, or that's true. Yale, Harvard is a it's like douchebag a, it's like a answer. Cliche, but it's, it's like you, you, people, people think you're being a dick when you say that. Well, but what's the alternative? <laughs> Just lie. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I guess there's right. no real one. And you played sports there, correct? Yeah,
1: that's that's what I ended up doing. I just deflect and say, "Well, I played lacrosse there, which helped me get in." And I'm like, sure that helps your cause. I don't know about that <laughs> exactly. That's another douchebag answer.
0: <laughs> uh, it's okay. Well, you studied political science and Eng- English. Yeah, literature. Cool. Yeah. So, um, but as overall, you liked your experience at Harvard. I had say. a
1: great time there. I loved it. Um, I learned how to write there and, you know, everyone, a lot of people say like, well, my God, you're a comedian, uh, and your parents, and you went to Harvard, your parents must be disappointed or something. But I would argue that more than a lot of my friends, I'm actually using a lot of the things that I learned in college now in my life.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, definitely having that background in English and being well-read, I'm sure, and just... Being able to speak is kind of...
1: Yeah, speak it, but, and write too. I mean, yeah. you know, it was I was a blogger at Barstool for a couple of years and, and I think everything I learned about writing was stuff that I'd learned at in college.
0: Did you do comedy in, um, in college? A
1: little bit. My senior year I started doing it. Um, I got into stand-up. I did two shows my senior year. There was a comedy club in Cambridge called the comedy connection or maybe it's the comedy studio. And it was above a Chinese food restaurant. And I would always walk by it and when I got the urge to perform, I finally walked in there one day, one day and asked if I could and they gave me a spot a couple of weeks later. That's awesome. Yeah.
0: And then is did you come to New York directly after school?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I was I had applied for Teach for America. Oh. Um, and I was kind of excited about that idea and I thought I was going to get it and, but I had applied in the, like the last round Mm -hmm. and right as they were checking over our applications, they, they ran out of funding for that year and they had all these cutbacks. So they had kind of offered me a job and then they took it away.
0: (laughs) No way. And
1: when that happened, that was late too. That was April. You know, a month before graduation, and uh, that's when I said, "All right, well, I'm just going to move to New York and become a comedian. See if that I can make that work."
0: That's awesome. So, did you start working directly for Barstool then, or? Um... Oh
1: no, no. I I moved to New York, and I this was in 2011, and I got into the improv scene at the Upright Citizens Brigade UCB. Oh yeah, okay. My doing...
0: roommates. Boyfriend performs
1: there. Yeah, it's a great place. If that's where you know, if you're trying to learn improv, I, I actually really liked the sketch writing classes there too that I took. Um, I think I found those more useful, even for me than the than the improv classes. But I worked there. Sorry, I, I took classes there while I was also doing stand up, and then I started tutoring. I got a job tutoring, and that was like what I ended up doing to supplement my income. While I was being a comedian. And I did that for about five or six years maybe. Before I finally got hired at Barstool. Got hired at Barstool at the end of 2016.
0: Okay. And you mentioned your parents. Or like the joke that your friends say about your parents. Not wanting you to go into comedy. But is that, is that really how they felt? Or did they also see that connection between English and comedy?
1: Well my parents were totally supportive. That's awesome. Regardless of what I wanted to do. Um. I think they knew that I was going to be realistic about it. They didn't see me as some delusional wanderer who was shipping off to Los Angeles to find myself as an actor, (laughs) you know, I had, I had a pretty specific (laughs) thought and, uh, the fact that I was able to, you know, pay my rent while I was pursuing it, that's all they cared about.
0: Yeah. And they knew you wanted to initially do Teach for America. So I guess that, that makes sense. Um, so i wanted to kind of i'd obviously know you places to be and um so i kind of wanted to jump right into not that i don't think your life's exciting but i wanted to jump into kind of the some questions that touch on like the theme of my podcast of I guess. course yeah um but just for some background when i was brainstorming questions to ask i kind of got stuck because I knew about you being fired from Barstool, and you have about your podcast, but I kind of had heard about that on other podcast, and I didn't really want to beat a dead horse. Mm-hmm. So I was then looking through our mutual followers, and noticed it was very male. My, the entire Hopkins lacrosse team was following you, um, and <laughs> I saw my friend Adrian um, was one of your followers, so I called him, and I said, listen... I'm talking to Francis about, um, for my podcast and I was stuck on ideas, you know, what could we come up with? And he gave me some great insight and he said, you know, Francis is kind of looked at as he's my idol. He's awesome. I mean, and it, it, it makes sense. Like you're a good looking guy. You had a phenomenal education. You were a one athlete. You're obviously very funny. You worked at Barstool. Like you're kind of the ultimate bro. <laughs> so I mean you kind of are and I think people especially young guys like 20 something year olds will consider you or your life to be pretty ideal so I kind of wanted to ask you about your life when you were working for Barstool and prior to being fired but like, was your life really this pi- picture perfect
1: oh god no not at all and you know I hate to burst Adrian's bubble <laughs> but uh, you know I I've had unfortunately always been afflicted with what what has now almost become a f- self-fulfilling prophecy for comedians which is you know the really persistent uh self-doubt uh bo- you know certain, certain real bouts of depression um and uh and self-loathing all that stuff um and you know, I I've I've been a little bit open about it. I was a little bit open about it at Barstool. Uh, I got I kind of had a moment there where I was really struggling for a, a long period of time with my thoughts, and uh, it all came tumbling out of me in a blog that I wrote one day, where I just it was like. Uh, it was me just t- thinking out loud on pay- in a blog about suicide. And I-, I wrote this long thing, which was meant to be a way to show people how I deal with suicidal thoughts. And of course, Barstool is a li- is meant to be a lighthearted diversion, yeah, funny humor sports blog for, for people. And so I, I, I don't. I didn't. I, have to, I put it up. I hit publish for about ten minutes, and then I had this feeling of like, God, this is way too personal and too dark. This is not what people come here for. So I took it down. But what I've learned, because this is what also led to me being fired, is that any blog you put up for even a second is going to be immortalized or yeah. you know screenshot and and then have made available the internet is written in ink so it's it's still going to be able to be found and uh so a bunch of people found it and it was um it was me revealing to a lot of people that you know on a daily basis i have suicidal thoughts and and that i had a a, i gave like four or five ways that i try to keep them at bay um which include you know making sure that i exercise a lot getting outside uh you know, taking joy in the success of other people around me, because if you pin your emotional ups and downs on your own life, uh, you're, you're putting so much pressure on yourself and the outcomes become far more heavy and, and, uh, affect you more. Whereas like to see a person around me at barstool, uh, having a great blog or having a great show or whatever, and, and to genuinely feel and get excited by it for them, means that you're getting these these boosts and you don't have to work for them that hard. It's just a matter of being excited and empathetic. Um, but I wrote this blog and, you know, within that day, I must have received 400 emails, maybe 700 DMs from people who were so moved by it, but more importantly, who... Uh, couldn't believe that I was going through this thing that sounded so similar to what they were going through. Wow. And um, to, have, to have shown these people from all over the country, all different types of people, uh, that, that they're not alone you know, in their darkness or their tough moments uh, made me very grateful that I had actually published the blog um and it was it's to this day the thing that i i'm happiest about having done at barstool
0: wow i had no idea i actually hadn't seen that article surprisingly but i mean that kind of answers a lot of my questions um just out of curiosity were the responses and dms you received like mostly from men
1: well yeah i think i think they were probably yeah absolutely um you know my Instagram following at the time was like 15% female, 85% male. And so, yeah, I think definitely so. I mean, I was getting I was getting messages from doctors who were fans wow. who would would help, you know, offer to talk. Everyone wanted to say said, you know, if you ever want to talk, yada yada. Mm-hmm. Some people offering their support, some people saying, you know, I got a message from a guy who had said that the day before he read my article, he drove his car to the middle of the George Washington Bridge, got out, and stood over the railing with the intention to jump. He had written his goodbye notes to his girlfriend, to his parents, and all this. And he stood there for a long time, and something made him get back into his car. But he you know, went to bed, didn't feel great, wasn't feeling good at all, woke up, read my blog... And said that, that he thought my blog was the thing that had spoken directly to him. That had sort of pulled him back from the ledge, so to speak. Wow. And I don't, I'm do not i not trying to take credit for that. No, I mean... But even if one person is that affected by something that I've written, uh, you have to say that it's worth it.
0: Oh, a thousand percent. I think, I mean, that's just what I want to do with this podcast yeah. is show people that and have people on and so they can share stories like that and just take solace in it and be like oh okay i'm not the only person feeling like this i'm not you know the only one suffering i mean i had no idea about that story and i i still asked you to be on this podcast Yeah, yeah i mean it's crazy did how did the people from barstool respond did
1: they want you to put it back up? Did no. Um, you know, I think I think everyone knew it was something that was deeply personal to me. Uh, so people, a lot of people for, at the company, you know, wanted to make sure that I was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that it was the first time I had made allusions to having dark thoughts. Okay. So I think people had always wondered, been, been aware that there was something bubbling under the surface – a couple guys pulled me aside into quiet rooms and sat down and talked with me for a while, mm-hmm. and um, and and I think it was just another case of like y- you just be shocked at how common, yeah. th- such an extreme thought is, um, and and the way that people have dealt with it, and uh, you know how they get through it. Everyone's different, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> um you'd have to say though that that anyone who has attempted suicide or really even gone to, to such lengths as to think about it that that much you know they've survived themselves in in a way because yeah. nobody wants to be this way nobody fucking I think that's the that's the biggest misconception about depression and mental mental illness is that people who don't have it uh, assume that that it is a kind of an indulgence. Yeah, and um, trust me, you know, I am not wallowing. I'm doing everything I fucking can to yeah, to make my funny. brain as uh, you know steady and normal as possible. I, I have a, I, to, 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 from my diet to my exercise routine to my extremely expensive therapy sessions you know all that shit is is part and parcel of keeping this machine running despite the fact that there is a severe design flaw yeah uh in in what i who i am so um there's a great special right now on hbo gary goleman's special it's called the great Depression, and he's one of the best comedians in my opinion in the world and roundly known among comedians in New York as being one of the greatest joke writers there is. And it's an entire hour about how, over the last two years, he had such a severe bout of depression. And he's been dealing with it his, his whole life, but that he hospitalized himself. Wow. And uh, it's all about his recovery from that. And he somehow finds a way to make it this bubbly, lighthearted, uh, wonderful, you know pontification on depression and he truly frames it as a disease and not some you know woe is me feel bad for me because that's that's not disease. i mean
0: it's like breaking your ankle i mean it's physical and mental and it's terrible right so i'm just kind of curious i mean i know that you wrote the article as kind of a way to through which you could kind of process everything did you usually write to process your thoughts? Yeah.
1: What I learned about a year in at Barstool was that the more personal that I got with my writing, the more that it connected with readers. And that's when I stopped kind of writing like, oh, look, you know, here's a video clip of a late night fight at a Denny's and here are my thoughts on it. Uh, I stopped writing that stuff and I started writing, you know, 1,000 word Uh, imagination, uh, pieces about, you know, the girl that works at this local cupcake shop and whether or not we're actually in love, you know, or, you know, all kinds of just totally ridiculous, long form, uh, anxiety riddled over analytical, uh, many, many paragraph pieces about a very small exchange. And the, I was so open and so transparent, um, but I would exaggerate a lot. I mean, I would really speak a stream of consciousness that sh- should never have been on page. Um, and then occasionally you kind of forget what should remain personal and maybe quiet to you. And you, you open yourself up a little too much. And that was always something I struggled with. Because I, I never really knew where the line was. Like, you know, should I, be, should I be talking about members of my family? What should I remain private with? Um,
0: and was this just your written comedy or is this also in stand-up?
1: Yeah, I think I, I'm, I'm, I'm always, at this point, I'm pretty open in every avenue that I, I'm involved in. Um, so in stand-up, though, you have to be funny every 30 seconds. And so you don't really have the luxury of going on for a full paragraph without a laugh. Whereas in a written piece, you they know. Don't
0: really know what their direct response is. Yeah. Exactly.
1: So I, I would say I, I do it a little bit less in, in stand-up, you know.
0: Yeah. You know. Yeah. Because, I mean, obviously you touched on it earlier, but there's very strong connection between mental health and comedy and you see a lot of different comedians kind of use it almost seems like they're using comedy or stand-up as their form of therapy i mean like pete davidson for example like openly talks about his depression and it's but then he's kind of labeled almost as like this self-deprecating comedian like that's you know maybe what his comedy style would be do you think that The fact that, I don't know, I guess I'd like like to hear your thoughts kind of on whether that's healthy or like, or hurting or like, or negative that people use mental health in comedy so much or rely on it, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I don't think that a stand up stage and a microphone are an adequate substitute for therapy yeah or medication and i fear that a lot of comedians actually believe that they think that by going to an open mic on a wednesday in the lower east side and getting up there and speaking their truth for five minutes about how miserable they are that somehow they are being proactive about uh you know their brain chemistry and that's ridiculous because you're not you're not getting answers You're not, you know, you're not taking true steps forward to fixing yourself. You're just dumping. And one thing that, you know, mental health issues and depression are, it's so pervasive in standup comedy that it's almost a joke itself. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you kind of wonder, uh, you know, is a comedian on stage talking about being depressed just because they've seen all the great comedians do it and they think this is the language we speak or are they truly suffering? Um, and, 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 and usually you can kind of hear it in the way that they talk um, and what they're talking about. But what happens, the big difference is, right, the, the, the great comedians that talk about their depression, that's the Gary Goleman guy, um, they they will still write jokes and really great jokes about what it's like to, to go through this. And Gary Goldman, for example, one thing he talks about is how he knew he was in trouble when he started eating ice cream with a fork. Right, like if you find fork tine marks in an ice cream container, that means that that person is too depressed. To use a spoon and a bowl like a normal functioning person. Yeah. And I think that's that's great, right? Yeah. And that's like actually trying to find the silver lining and the light in this dark thing. But if you're just getting up there and kind of wallowing in your despair and, and trying to elicit sympathy laughs from the audience, I think you're doing a disservice not only to yourself but also to, to mental illness because you're just – saturating everybody with it and then everyone stops believing it
0: yeah i think also i mean it i think in some ways it almost then is either used as a crutch kind of or a, a car to pull out and also i i don't know i mean i i do s- see the importance of bringing it up but i where was i going with that i think Sometimes, like, the whole point about mental illness is that it's not, doesn't necessarily, you know, it's not blatant and in your face. Like, you could come off like you are as, like, a very personable person and very happy and all of that and still suffer. So it's it's not, it doesn't have, like, a face and it doesn't have an act. It's pervasive regardless of what you're talking about, kind of. And just like how you said um, with this comedian who talked about ice cream and kind of... in incorporated jokes that's the whole point is like he right is still high functioning it's still a happy person or comes off as that but you know also has these awful thoughts so i think that's i mean even just the fact of like kind of how you opened up about your article shows that i mean i had no idea i I was just gonna ask if you ever made jokes about anxiety in the past like little did i know you know
1: yeah no, I, I – yeah, it's – so, you know, your original question was, uh, is it bad? Well, let's say, like, should should comedians be using it as a crutch? And I, I don't think so. I don't think that's good at all, of yeah. course. Um, I think it's like any subject. It, you know, it, 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 when presented right, can make for amazing humor. But if it's just mentioned as some kind of uh, – for the sake of mentioning it you know that's that's bullshit
0: yeah i actually read this article recently that was talking about how there's now exists a culture where 20 something year old guys kind of who aren't in comedy but they use comedy maybe in like daily life as their means to therapy and i think that can probably be traced back to what they you know what they watch on comedy central and things like that or what they see from comedians because they're like oh this is a way I can joke about it and just kind of brush it off rather than actually dealing with their issues. So I was wondering, I mean, you mentioned that you go to therapy, but for someone who a, – a guy who either can't afford it or like what resources are offered to either comedians or just in general, if any, to deal with their anxiety or um, depression, et cetera?
1: I guess, I guess this goes to – um Almost sort of the blog that I wrote, which is, uh, you know, what I I can only offer what has helped me. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you can't afford therapy, you know, that's that's sad. Uh, But I know that there are help centers and even, you know, if you have health insurance, you can get in network therapists who are very, very good. Um, But. What I would say, if if that's not an option, um, is, you know, exercise for me is so valuable. Yeah, uh, I really make a point every day to get exercise in some ways. You know, whether if I'm if I'm lifting weights or running on a treadmill or even just getting out and you know jumping rope or something like that. Um, it doesn't need to be on a full on workout, but get your heart rate moving and get your blood moving. And it just adds oxygen to the brain. And for me, that has been an immensely important tool in helping me sleep well. Um, So that's like the first thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sleep is so important. You know, you hear a lot of very depressed people say like, I just never want to get out of bed. I just want to stay in bed. And the key to getting out of bed in the morning is not going to bed at one in the morning. You know, try, try to have your light off before 1130. And the key to that is not bringing your fucking phone into your bed. Okay. I, <laughs> I, I set up my phone charger, uh, out in the hallway from my bedroom That's and I will plug my phone in and I will set my alarm and then I will walk into my bedroom and it's in a different place. And I will I will then I will read my book before bed. Maybe five pages. I don't know. I don't wanna sound like a a, a hermit, but <laughs> your phone screen should not be the last thing that you see before you go to bed. Yeah. You I know think better about that. Wipe it from your brain and then your phone alarm will go off in the morning and you'll be forced to get out of bed and you will go turn your alarm off and what you should not do is then pull your phone out of the plug and go back into bed with it. <laughs> Keep your bed and your phone separate. I can't tell you how important that is.
0: Yeah, that's true. I, I should definitely be better about that. I guess kind of the, the last thing I was wondering about in, in regarding mental health and kind of how it, how men deal with it is I think that there's like a tendency or an unwillingness of, for young men to share their feelings and i think that i mean obviously your whole job is to share your feelings whether they be about mental health or about your day wh- whatnot so i guess kind of what advice would you give to or how would you encourage young men maybe in their 20s who are you know think that by showing weakness or showing that they're not happy how, how would you encourage them to open up
1: well I think mental health, like a lot of issues, uh, has, has really taken amazing leaps forward in, in its acceptance in popular culture. Um, if you were to compare it to, you know, America's thinking on like gay rights, you go back to the fifties and and sixties and gay people were, were seen as an aberration it, it you know, it was was there were there were no gay pride parades. It was this un un people couldn't fathom it. It was detrimental to the nuclear family, all that shit. And then mm-hmm. you know, within thirty years, and especially within the last fifteen, the country has swung over to everyone's in favor of gay, mar- gay marriage. Yeah, yeah, of course. Like, what are you talking about? It, you're seen as being a crotchety, out of touch idiot if you oppose it. Um, so that's a good, good parallel. I think, you know, I think with so many celebrities and comedians, some athletes have opened up about their struggles with mental health. A fascinating one for me is, uh, Ron Artest. I watched his, uh, he, he was a NBA player, famously played for the, um, well, he played for the Lakers with Kobe for, for years, but before that he was playing for the Indiana Pacers for the famous malice at the palace, which was like, it's like the worst brawl that has ever happened in the NBA oh. where he re- went into the crowd and started attacking fans. And it was only found out later, I think that he had severe bipolar disorder. Oh, wow. And now he has become a spokesperson for mental health awareness and is, you know, a, a very decorated face in, in that community. and is, um, But here was this tough kid from the yeah. streets, you know, who came up as an NBA player. And nobody was talking about that. But had he been more open about it, you know, you can't help but wonder might have, might the team or the organization have helped him time, get the help he needed to avoid this sort of thing that happened. When did he play? Like, when was that? Uh, he probably retired in maybe like 2013 or 14 or something. Okay. But he was playing all through the the 2000s and.
0: Yeah, but even back then, I mean, yeah, you're right. Just in terms of progress. Yeah. I saw a meme recently that was something like, uh, I can't like recreate it, but it was something comparing kind of how baby boomers talk about mental health versus like millennials and Gen Z, whatever. Right. Next, but just the, like harsh contrast of us being more open, which I think is just so imperative. Yeah. Um, but as
1: far, to, again, to, to your question, because I feel like I keep getting sidetracked, uh, the, you know, I, I'm hoping that a 20-year-old man in college, in a frat, you know, in, in now or maybe a couple years from now, won't be... Worried about going to his friends and saying, dudes, you know, I need help. Uh, I'm not happy. I'm really unhappy. I'm really miserable. I'm having a lot of dark thoughts. And that not those those guys will know where to point him. Mm -hmm. You know, even if they don't feel comfortable kind of helping him out on their own, uh, they'll they'll know enough to say, like, dude, you have to go to the. Office of Health Services or the, whatever the, the place on campus. And you need to talk to somebody because there are people here that are set up to help you. You got to do it today. Yeah. Fucking go. Um, and uh, hopefully that, you know, that becomes a normal thing. Like telling somebody, hey, man, like I, I cut my finger. Where do I go? Or, yeah. you know, yeah. that sort of thing.
0: Do you think that, I guess, I mean, you worked at Barstool, which is controversial i guess like the company and kind more so i'd say less the company and more so just kind of its audience do you think that in any way or did you ever find that you kind of had a felt that it was promoting a culture of like toxic masculinity that would in some ways kind of prohibit that
1: um uh, it's, a, it's a good question um I I didn't feel when I was there that um, that the work that people that that everyone was putting out was encouraging men to revert to yesterday's thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did not feel that Dave or anyone there was sort of like galvanizing men to mistreat women or or to dive deeper into the toxic masculinity thing I, I really did not feel that way i think unfortunately what happened was culture yeah became so much more sensitive to it and rightly so rightly so i think i think the outside world really moved forward in saying like it is no longer okay to talk to women this way in the workplace it is no longer okay to do this the me too movement exploded while i was at barstool so you know with that unfortunately came a lot of um uh you know a lot of people started pointing to barstool for stuff that they had said in their 15 year history Which, yeah, 15 years ago, I mean, if, if they had said some of those things that they'd said 15 years ago today or 10 years ago, you know, yeah, you'd be like, whoa, what are you doing? Like, you, you got to know that that's going to cause some problems. But while I was there, you know, from 2016 to 2019, um, it had already undergone a, a major overhaul. A major, yeah. you know, a major effort to become more gender balanced in terms of its content contributors, uh, in hiring Erica Nardini as a CEO, and uh, you know, Dave was the first guy to tell me like, when I wrote, you know, whenever I wrote something that was controversial, like, yo, you got to be careful, like, don't do that. That's not who we are. Yeah. Um. So, uh, you know, the ultimate irony was that. I ended up getting fired and effectively taken down by an article that was portrayed as being, uh, somehow anti-women. Although most people didn't really say that. I I don't think anyone really saw that because frankly, if it had been a man, I would have written the same exact thing. Um, it was just grossly insensitive to, to a very, uh, you know, very touchy subject, uh, and, and with, with a terrible outcome. So, um, you know who knows I don't think anyone would have said that any of my work leading up to that point though was misogynistic and I don't think much of the work that I saw there was particularly so
0: (laughs) I'm going to ask you now five questions um to end this episode just so we can kind of I guess like dive deep for the last couple of minutes sure so the first question what's one thing in your life that's happened to you that's made you a stronger person today
1: Um, I would say definitely getting broken up with by a person that I was deeply in love with, um, a girl that I dated for seven years, thought we would end up together. Uh, and that ended and it sent me into a pretty dark place. (laughs) And, uh, but then you kind of, each day you get a little better and you find happiness again and then you realize, okay, well, I got through that. That didn't kill me. So uh that'll make you stronger getting dumped
0: <laughs> Did, um i guess in what point in your of your life that was that like that, that was, it was in, that ended
1: yeah that was in uh i guess two thousand sixteen right before barstool like okay. a, like eight months before barstool yeah
0: got it okay second question is do you believe everything happens for a reason
1: no i I like to think that I have some control over my own choices and that not everything is inevitable but i also know that when bad things happen a good way to to bounce back from them and to find the positives in it is to say like okay you know that happened for a reason and how can i grow and learn from it and prevent it from happening again so it's weird it's like when things are going well i like to think i made that happen and then when things are going badly, I'm like, God is fucking me, you know?
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's that's true. Yeah. Or like just finding the like the silver lining and everything, and yeah, and and making it something good. Because right. I guess you could look at everything as being something good, or at least like a learning or a lesson.
1: Right.
0: If a crystal ball could tell you anything about yourself, your life, the future, or anything else, what would you most want to know?
1: Um, I'd love to know if I will be performing stand up in 10 or 15 years. You know, is that something that I'm still going to be really passionate about? Will I be, um, much more successful in that in 10 or 15 years? Or will I be doing something adjacent to standup, you know, like writing for a TV show or acting or whatever it may be? Um, that's something that I'd like to, I'd be interested to see.
0: Do you kind of have an answer that you'd want to know, like you'd want it to be?
1: Well, I'd be blown away if I looked into a crystal ball and 15 years from now I'm headlining Madison Square Garden, you know, that would be pretty nuts. But even if it were like theaters, that would be cool. Or I guess sold out clubs, if all my club shows were sold out. But I'm not that far off, like I'm I'm, I'm sold out clubs now, so... uh, I guess I just want to know that things were a little bit better than they are <laughs> right now, you know?
0: Yeah, got it. Okay, what, if anything, is too serious to be joked about? Coming from a comedian.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think most comedians will tell you that it there's nothing that's off limits, as long as it's funny. Um, the problem is that certain topics, is just way harder to be funny about. You know, it's so much harder to write a, an actually funny rape joke that most people can at least acknowledge is funny. Um, And it's it's even harder still if you're a man trying to do it. And I'm not saying like, oh, men should be able to. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying a woman who has more experience with that, like whatever's personal to you, it's easier for the audience to connect with stuff. So like, you know, if I I shouldn't write, I'm not writing jokes about police brutality because I'm not really affected by that, whereas like a a black person or, you know, a person of color who who has endured that, that's going to be much more personal to them.
0: Yeah, because you, you know? have to write things, I guess, that you have experience with.
1: I think it's easier to for an audience to buy it from yeah. you. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it'd be, it'd be pretty hard to buy that yeah. from you. <laughs> what do you love most about yourself?
1: Um, I like that I love. wasn't. What's that? Love. I life. love that I was not afraid to take a shot on on um, on something that was so uncertain as comedy. You know that I've never shied away from going off the beaten path and, and not doing the safe thing. Um, that in college I didn't follow the wave that all my friends were on of going into finance or having really pretty secure livelihoods and becoming very financially successful. And that I just struck out on this idea of being a comedian in New York. And, you know, I think seven years later, I was headlining the Wilbur theater shooting my special in front of 1600 people. And that was a major validation for me that I had made a decision that wasn't insane, you know?
0: Yeah. I think that's a really good thing to be proud of. And it's like, You love your courage.
1: Yeah. Sure. Yeah.
0: Okay. Last question. In one sentence, how do you find solace in the city?
1: Cook for yourself. (laughs) I like to cook my own meals. I find it very uh, therapeutic and the focus of cooking and then eating, even if you're in a shitty, tiny shoebox apartment or if you're on a farm out in Vermont, you know, the the taste of cooking your own food is uh makes you feel like you're at home and that's peaceful.
0: Yeah, I never really thought about that. What do you, what do you cook?
1: I cook very simple food. I'm I'm by no means a a chef de cuisine. <laughs> but uh, you know, I like to cook fish and sort of more of like a Mediterranean diet type thing. I like that. Yeah.
0: Francis, thank you so much for agreeing on the interview. I really can't tell you how much I appreciate this and just will really treasure this moment for the rest of my life. Oh, please. Um,
1: (laughs) I'm very happy to do it. It's really fun.
0: Thank you. And So where can my very large audience of followers um, follow you and what shows do you have coming up that they could go to? Yeah.
1: Um, come check out my shows at Gotham Comedy Club, November 22nd and 23rd. Uh, it's a great comedy club. It's right on 23rd Street between 7th and 8th. Uh, you can get tickets for that at FrancisEllis.com. Otherwise, follow me on Instagram at Francis C. C. Ellis.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks again. And yeah, yeah I'll see you guys later. <laughs>
1: Sweet.